This is Limit Up, the place where we explore markets, strategies, and trading psychology to take your trading to the next level. Welcome to the first full trading week of the new year, and uh, welcome to Limit Up. You know the deal. This is the show where we talk about markets, futures, forex, and trading psychology with some of the best in the industry. My name is Jack Pelzer. And our guest today is none other than Brock Connolly. If you don't know Brock, he spent 15 years trading at the CME before leaving to become the founder, CEO, and head of brokerage at Roundblock Capital, which is a Bitcoin futures brokerage. That's right, we're talking crypto today, which is the real wild, wild west of futures trading. This is going to be a super interesting episode, and you're going to learn a ton about the trading and crypto industries from Brock, we promise. Uh, but first, before we get to that interview, just wanted to let you know that we are already dissecting the results of our listener survey, and I think it's going to make this show a whole lot better. I mean, it was okay before, but it's going to be a lot better. Um, I'm going to announce some of the takeaways and upcoming changes next week, but right now, as promised, I'd like to reveal the first five winners of our $100 Amazon gift certificate giveaway, uh, although it's more like a gift code, I suppose. Anyway, the winners are... And this is slightly difficult because I'm trying to infer a name from their email without giving away their email address. Anyway, the winners are PDW Trader, Julian, Kong, Alex R, and FX Trader. Now, there's some email eccentricities here. Uh, I will be sending you an email, you five people, so you will know if you got it. Uh, you'll get those right after the podcast comes out, pretty much. Uh, so anyway, I'll be revealing the second five winners next week. And since this information is so important and we would really love to get a few more responses, uh, we're still going to leave it open. So if you head over to topsuptrader.com slash listener survey, it only takes two minutes and give yourself a chance at one of those uh, $500 gift cards next week. That's some great ROI right there. I'll be back at the end with a little housekeeping. In the meantime, please enjoy today's interview between Jeff Carter and Brock Connolly. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Top Step Trader Limit Up podcast. My name is Jeff Carter. I'm your host. You can find me online at pointsandfigures.com, which is my blog. You can find me at Twitter at Points and Figures. And I'm raising money right now to uh, dedicate a room at the Higgins Hotel in the New Orleans for the World War II Museum for the Unknown Soldier. And if you could donate, uh, 10, 20 bucks to that on the GoFundMe page that I have, that would be great. I really appreciate it. Today, we welcome to the program Brock Connolly. He is the founder, CEO, and head of brokerage of Roundblock Capital. And uh, Roundblock is not your typical capital firm. Welcome to the program, Brock. Thanks, Jeff. So good to be here. Yeah. So why don't you just tell everybody what Roundblock Capital does? So uh, Roundblock Capital, we're, we're a CFTC-regulated independent uh, introducing brokerage firms, and uh, we specialize in digital asset futures. So um, we're, we're one of the few out there. And what that means, actually, is, is Bitcoin futures now that are listed on CME, backed, and uh, IRISX, which is going live in the next uh, day or two. So talk about, talk, let's unpack that, what you said at the beginning. So you're an IB. What's an IB? What does an introducing broker do? Yeah, so in the, in the listed regulated you know derivative space, you have you know layers of service providers basically for trading and risk management. So you've got the exchanges, um, which have a clearinghouse, and sitting on top of the clearinghouse is uh, the FCM, so the futures commission merchants. Uh, they they actually take the money, hold the money, and they they provide some um, you know some brokerage services as well, and and of course clear the trade. But they generally don't specialize in the different um, products that the exchanges offer. So um, there's another layer of, of service providers in there that are called IBs, introducing brokers. So um, IBs are essentially the, the customer-facing um, firm that provides all kinds of brokerage services. So you have IBs specializing in grains and livestock and equity derivatives, and you have ones that are just you know, low cost service providers, you have a whole range. So do IBs execute the trade for you or not? 
Um, they can. So yeah, you you could definitely have you know IB set up edge program, which is what which is what we do, and and they could you know um, execute the trades for you. Um, if there was some kind of like a managed program, you would generally have uh, you know a CTA or a CPO, which kind of sits on the same level as an IB, um, executing different strategies for you. But for the most for the most part, um, you know, a lot of our customers they they're executing the trades themselves with you know, either an I- API connection, you know, direct market connection to the exchange or third party, you know, platforms. Um, and of course, we facilitate all of those relationships as well. Got it. And then the other thing that people hear a lot about in sort of futures is CTAs, which are commodity trade advisors. So what's the difference between an IB and a CTA? Well, an IB basically is just providing the the, uh, the, the brokerage services and advice, um, setting up clearing relationships, um, putting together hedge programs, you know, um, that sort of thing. A CTA basically, or a CPO, they they actually go in and specialize in certain trade strategies. And then they would, you know, you, you they would basically be executing that strategy for you. Um, a, a pool would essentially be doing the same thing. Whereas, um, you know, we would actually, uh, we would be working with certain CTAs and CPOs as well and and setting them up with with clearing and with API connections and things of like that of that nature. So you and I have known each other for a few years. Um, when did you break into the floor trading business? Well, I'm actually going to go back even a little bit more if I could, because I think it's relative to the conversation. So um, I, I, I got out of university during the uh, first boom. So I have a you know, computer science major and was, was hired and actually went to work for a startup, um, a web 1.0 startup in Chicago. Which one? Uh, the name was March 1st. March? I remember March 1st. Yeah, we were kind of a big deal. So Yeah, you were. You raised VC money and everything. VC money went public, um, took out a Super Bowl ad, in fact, in the year 2000, right before the crash. And the crash happened. Um, you know, everybody was laid off. You know, the company went under. And um, we just like, it was such a, an awesome experience. You know, learned a ton about working with startups. Being involved in a, in a huge boom and bust cycle, which we, you know, we can kind of cycle to crypto once we move on with the conversation. But so at that at that point, um, basically, I had not necessarily like my my family, but I had a lot of friends and 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 uh, people were like, you, you know, that whole internet thing. That's that's nothing, right? You know, the web. That's that that's all BS. Um, that's that's never going to be a thing. Companies are never going to do business on the web and everything. And to my detriment, I listened to them, and I actually went out and got, I actually went out and got a real job. I got a job with a huge tech consulting company, um, and spent a few years with them before I learned like this is brutal. I'm not the I'm not the kind of guy that just goes to work. Um, you know, I was working on you know customers working for uh, Fortune 500 companies. Everybody came in at eight and left at five, and it was like they had 30 minutes for lunch and. It was just brutal. And so uh, I quit and, you know, I had basically family that was, you know, my, my father had been associated with the exchange since the, the mid 70s. My brother was down there. And so um, it seemed like a logical place. And, you know, we this is uh, basically 2004 when you had a lot of uh, institutional money coming into commodities. You had China which was driving a lot of, um, you know, buying of commodities worldwide. You had index funds coming in. Um, you know, you had a lot of more sophisticated derivatives. And so I, I walked into the exchange, bought a seat and uh, went down to the floor. I had no idea how to trade. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, but, you know, it was real interesting to be there. Getting back a little more, you know, my, my dad came up to the exchange in 1977 and he had $100 in his pocket. He came came from a really small town, uh, central Indiana. Um, just one of those amazing stories and those stories that were prevalent on the exchange at the time. I mean, that's how a lot of people came, really. He took one trip up to Chicago. He saw the pits and he said, that's, that's where I want to be. He had no money. He had no idea really how he was going to kind of break in. Um, but he ended up doing really well for himself. So, you know, s- such an entrepreneurial um, story. The whole exchange is really 
Um, and we and we can kind of make that parallel too with you know kind of how crypto is now. But uh, yeah, and so I you know I basically kind of did the same thing and slept on people's couches and stood in the pits. Um, you know, went around to a bunch of different complexes and just try you know put in my put in my sweat time and, and you know tried to learn how to trade. Yeah, interesting. Funny story about your dad. So I, I went and you know he was a hog a hog broker and trader and. So first time I really was into the hogs um, was about 1996. The euro dollars were super slow and there was nothing to do. And Brett Carl said, go over to the hogs. So I go over to the hogs and I was long a four lot. And it seemed like a lot at the time because I really didn't know what the hell I was doing. And I was standing in the second option and I wasn't spreading yet or anything. I was just trying to figure out, you know, head from toe. And so Gilly Goodman, I'll never forget this, comes in the pit and he goes, what's here half bid well i was long for it like a half yeah <laughs> and i just wanted to get out you know yeah and so i yelled sold and um in that pit you you took them all where in the euro dollars they'd say how many do you want and then you you know they'd parcel them out and so me and this guy anto who you know he traded in the pit we both said sold at the same time and gilly looks at me and he looks at anto and he goes 50 50 <laughs> and i'm like Oh shit. So now I'm short 46 and Brad Werner, um, Wyo, not the most, uh, nicest person around goes, Hey guys, what's here? Yeah. He's like 60 bit on 10, 70 bit on 10, 80 bit on 10, 90 bit on 10. And I looked at your dad and I said, okay, John, how much money am I out right now? <laughs> Cause I didn't even know. Right. And he's like, he's like, he's like, well, let me, <laughs> 16,000 or so. I, okay, I go, okay, that's a, that's a good lesson to learn, like yeah. how to put a number on something, right. you know? And then I looked at Bobby Hanner and I said, what, what, what do I do with these? And Bobby said, write up an order ticket. So I wrote up an order ticket, timestamped it, gave it to him and he spread them off. And by the end of the day, I was up $1,200 on him <laughs> and I owed Bobby a round of golf and I was, and then John, John, your dad looks at me, he goes, you know, if you put a spread on, you're going to be here the rest of your life. Well, <laughs> it took me until 2003 to go there full time. But um, yeah, it was a very interesting place to trade. So yeah, um, it was an interesting fun, place funny to learn. Hog story. Right. Yeah. And, and my dad was kind of known as the gentleman of the hog pit. And, you know, you could you could get away with not get away with, but you could kind of execute other things in the hog pit that you could couldn't in, in other complexes. And so you know, was an interesting, was an interesting place to learn. Well, people don't realize that when they look at the pictures of the floor, that each pit had its own individual personality and the hogs was not like the pork bellies, was not like the S and P's, was not like the cattle. They were very, very different. Like in the cattle, they were very combative and the hogs, everybody was kind of nice to everybody for in, sure. For the most part. Right. Relative, <laughs> relatively speaking, right? Yeah. Relatively speaking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so anyway, what, what intrigues you about crypto? Well, you know, it, it's it's been kind of a long process. So I actually, you know, I was in Chicago my whole life, essentially. And in 2011, um, when things when liquidity was kind of draining off out of the floor and I knew I had to kind of do something different, um, I actually picked up and, and decided to move out to the West Coast. So, um, you know, m my wife um, is, is kind of from the Seattle area and, and we had a, a network of, of, you know, friends and family out here. And so, we thought it was an interesting place to uh, to live, and I thought it would be, you know, an interesting place to kind of clear my head and, and think about what was next, you know, on the agenda. And um, was still actively trading, and still, you know, obviously actively trade up until now. But you know, I so 2011 you know, moved out here and kind of like um, it was one of those like throw into the woods things, you know, and cleared my head, um, you know, um, kind of explored different markets, different trading strategies. And, um, you know, being out here in Seattle where there's a huge tech community and, and, a, and just a lot of, you know, people on the West Coast. It's different. It's definitely different. It's definitely it's definitely different. Um, there's pluses and minuses. But, you know, so I guess, you know, the story is, you know, just kind of got into some exploring. And I, you know, when ball was coming down and all these other markets, right, because the Fed is, you know, sat on sat on everything. Um, there was this one asset class, crypto, that was still moving. So as a trader, that obviously brought me in. That was probably the first thing to, to bring me in um, was was the volatility and kind of the newness of this. And then you start, you know, then I started going out 
and just talking to different projects. And there was a lot of them. Um, in fact, one of the one of the first uh, projects that I met here was um, they were in stealth at the time, but it was a project called uh, Dragon Chain. And Dragon Chain actually ended up being Disney's blockchain project, right? So um, and the, and the guy that was running that had meetups, you know, on a weekly or, and monthly basis. And it kind of started off with like four or five people. We would get together and try to figure out what the heck was going on um, in a lot of these digital assets. And um, eventually, um, little by little, just kind of fell in love with um, basically the protocol, the, the technology behind the Bitcoin blockchain. And um, so it went from, you know, a, a trader standpoint to volatility to really getting ingrained with, you know, the technology. And then um, there's also a really, you know, Washington State, where I live, is the lowest electricity basically in North America. That's right. There's a lot of there's a lot of miners out there and in Nebraska. Yep. So a lot of a lot of hydroelectric. So where we're at. And so there's just a lot of people that were mining. And so, you know. Kind of got in with some of these people again and learned about difficulty and hash rate and things of that nature. And um, actually went out and started talking to a lot of these different projects kind of when the price was coming up in the bull market 2016, 2017. I thought maybe I should start really taking this seriously. I was kind of working as an affiliate on an over-the-counter trading desk, bringing them deals, people that wanted to buy large blocks of Bitcoin. And, um, you know, every project I talk to, you know, there's not a lot of trading people out here, right? Um, in Seattle, it's not like, you know, when I go like to cocktail parties in Seattle and people ask me what I do, like, I'm almost kind of afraid to tell them, like, I'm an independent yeah. trader. Yeah, you know, like, there's no in, such thing as that there. No, it doesn't exist. When, you know, growing up in Chicago, living in Chicago, you used to tell people you worked at the Merck or you worked on the floor. Everybody knows what that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. N you know, nobody in Seattle has any idea what that is. It's like, oh, you don't work for Amazon or Microsoft or, you know, you're not like some quant or whatever. Yeah, you are a fish out of water in, in Seattle if you yeah, say you're so, a trader. Yeah, in, so in so many ways, right? And, and so... Um, be curious, just as an aside, it would be curious how many Top Step Trader customers are located in Seattle. Yeah, I'd be curious to know. It would be interesting. It would be interesting to know because they could have a meetup out there. Maybe you all could meet on Stock Twits or something like that and organize, like go to Pike Market and throw fish around or something. <laughs> Absolutely. Would but, love to. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, um, really none of these, none of these interviewing for some of these positions, it didn't really work out. And I said, okay, well, um, about that time, uh, end of 2017, there was rumblings about the CME Bitcoin contract. And I said, oh, this is perfect. And a full disclosure, I mean, for a good year or two before that, I was emailing everybody I knew on the board at CME and said, listen, this is an interesting technology. This is this is definitely an asset class. That's a thing. It's not going away. Um, and I, I think basically everybody I, I emailed thought I was crazy. And they probably still do. But who is they this did. idiot? Who is they, this idiot? <laughs> they did because I took Leo Malamed in a room in 20... 14 or 15. Yeah. And I said, Leo, you guys got to start trading Bitcoin futures. And I walked in his office and he said, Hey, Jeffrey, how are you? My friend Vinny's on the phone. And I said, What's Vinny want? He says, He wants to know how much money he can launder through Bitcoin. And I said, As much as he's doing through the SP pit now, but only cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I had I sent so many long winded emails, you know, to these guys and said, this is something you need to get in. And, and you know what, like in terms of timing, they were probably right. It probably wasn't time. You know, I would send them the here's here's BitMEX, you know, the largest derivatives liquidity in the world. They're out of Hong Kong. Here's their order book. Take a look, because they are going to be your competitor at some point in something. At some point, or you're going to have to buy them. And, and the interesting thing, just historically, um, is when we think about like the great contracts that these kind of old line exchanges in the futures industry trade, the newer ones, when they bubbled up, came from the community in a lot of cases. So this is no different. You're writing the board. If this was, you know, 1990 and Bitcoin was around, you'd be knocking on a door and saying, we got to trade futures in this. And they'd put a research department around it and stuff. Absolutely. And this is this is the one thing where 
a lot of people in crypto really don't understand, and this is kind of getting in of where I think the role is of, a, say, for instance, a CME. I think we have a huge role to play. And this is not, you know, breaking, breaking ground on new products is not something new to us. We've been doing this for over 100 years. Right. I, I totally agree with you 100%. And the, the hardcore Bitcoin fanboys don't believe you. Right. No question. And, you know, for instance, when the IMM came out and people were trading, you know, futures on currencies and then, and then the S&P and then, and then Globex came around, right, in the 90s and E-minis, all this took a while to take off. It didn't just happen overnight. And it took a lot of trial and error. And, and there's still products that are brought to market. And I tell people, you know, uh, in, in the old trading floor, well, not the old, the, the one that was, you know, on Wacker, if you went into the Merck Club, there was pictures of products past, right? There, I think they had like a crab product. Or I tell people all the time, like in the trading community in Chicago, we're proud to know people that say, I had a grandfather that actually traded butter and eggs, you know, which was, you know, which was all kind of groundbreaking at the time. Iced, and so, iced broilers or, yeah. you know, I mean, yeah, live cattle being tra trading live animals was revolutionary at the time. I absolutely mean, it was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, anyways, uh, you know, I bother these guys and it was kind of a grassroots efforts. And I don't want to I don't want to imply by any means that I was the one to push the exchange because I certainly wasn't. But here it is. Here's a member, you know, coming to the board of directors saying this is an important product. Here's why I think it's important. Here's the role I think we have to play in terms of, you know, how the world is going to manage risk in this asset class and how there's going to be price discovery. And eventually they listed it. Um, which, you know, was great. And so 50% margin, but yeah, yeah. They listed it. <laughs> well, you're, yeah, 50% to a hundred percent, right? It's just depending on what FCM you're dealing with. And quite frankly, yeah. it's still that way, Yeah, you know? Yeah. And so, and of, and of course, you know, kind of another battle. So they listed it right at the end of 2017. Of course, that was the high in the market. And so now till this day, everybody says, Oh, CME killed the contract, killed the price, right? Do you know what I say? I, I'm, so what do you say to those people? I know what I say to those people. Well, I say, you know, uh, futures on the S&P started in like 1982 and it was trading around 120 and it's trading at 3000 now. So obviously it's, you know, <laughs> I well, mean, that's that, one thing I would say. I would tell a, them a million things. That's a great point. I always tell people that there was a huge risk premium that was built into the Bitcoin price because you had you had no way to hedge it. And when CME listed their futures, there was a way to hedge it and the risk premium came out of it. Right. Yeah, no question. Well, and then you could also think about what kind of, you know, the reflexivity of it when they announced it, right? That was that was a big bullish factor. So sure. that might not legitimacy. have legitimacy. Yeah, that might not have even been in the market had they not announced it for there to be, you know, air to let out of. That's a great point. That's a very very great point. And then I was talking to Dennis Chukasian, who's on the board of CME about um Bitcoin futures after it had launched. And at the time it was trading right around 9,000 and for some some Somehow Dennis, somebody had either done the math or Dennis did the math, and he said, basically, it's trading for the cost to mine one Bitcoin on the electrical cost. Right. I don't know if that's true or not, but it was, that, right. was inter that was an interesting way to find parity in price. Definitely. Yeah. And, and yeah, I mean, even just to go back, though, you know, the derivatives markets have been blamed for every boom and bust of every commodity. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I remember, you know, when oil traded at 150, there was some bozo, um, you know, professor down in Houston that wrote some big paper. And, you know, the interesting thing about Bitcoin, though, quite frankly, was there was futures listed. We already mentioned BitMEX, but you could have gone to any kind of structured OTC desk and they would have written you, you know, any type of product. If you wanted to go short, there was places where you can get borrow and lend. Cumberland Mining would do it in Chicago for Absolutely. sure. Yeah. Yep. And, and so this, you know, the, the, the amount of Bitcoin that CME was trading at the time, which is totally, there's no way that that contract itself could have pushed it down. So no, no chance. And yeah, we're still, you know, we're quite frankly, we're still struggling with that. But there's, there is this, you know, it, the whole thing started with the cypherpunk movement in this kind of distrust of authority and, and you know, Wall, Wall Street type players. And, I try to I try to, you know, relay the fact that, you know, the trading community in Chicago with these exchanges is different from that. So different than yeah. Wall Street. 
Totally different. Um, so much more of a grassroots organization um, on the exchange. It's more. It's got more. It's got more. Uh, probably um, relationship to the cyberpunk community than it does the Wall Street community. If people no really knew about it, <laughs> no, no, no question. And yeah, I mean, I think getting back to your question of you know what kind of drew me into crypto. So you know, just just coming from an, an entrepreneurial background a trading background. And most of us that kind of grew up around the floor, we do have a libertarian bent. You probably sure. had the button on your jacket, like everybody did, free markets for free men. Right, right. And, and you hugged Milton Friedman today. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, you know, once you start adding up, you know, um, my, my background in, in markets and futures and, you know, kind of technology, and then the whole you know, aura around, you know, libertarianism and, you know, really an asset that is not controlled by anybody. Um, it was super interesting to me. So it was at, at that point when the CME kind of listed, I thought, you know what, I'm the guy that's, I, I kind of have a futures background and I can't kind of have a crypto background. Let's put them together and see what we could do. And so there it was, uh, you know, round block capital. And, and of course, um, had had never, you know, was always kind of an independent trader, um, was obviously a top step broker in, in the livestock complex. So understood how to deal with customers and fill orders. But in terms of starting your own firm, going through NFA registration. Totally different. Yeah, Totally different. Right. Had to learn a lot of things. And in fact, that took us about eight months yeah. um, to go through that process. It's a different level of regulation. I mean, we were quote unquote regulated on the floor, but right. you know, you got fingerprinted or whatever, mm -hmm. but that that was um very a very light regulation compared to like an NFA process or a CFTC process or a FINRA SEC process which I'm going through with a firm right now. Yeah. Um so yeah, a, a lot different. more uh, a lot more of a process than I Did you have to hire attorneys? I did. I've hired attorneys. So all basically all my service providers are out of Chicago. Um, so my CPA and my attorneys are, are in Chicago. Yeah. I mean, it, couldn't have done it any other way. Who are um, just, okay. I'm curious who you're using for your attorneys, um, on the futures crypto side. It's, uh, a, a firm called Mayor Brown. Oh, and, Mayor Brown. Yeah, 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 sure. Uh, Our mayor came from Mayor Brown. Oh, is that right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I hadn't realized Lori that. Lightfoot was a Mayor Brown. <laughs> yeah. A good friend of mine, um, Mark Kadish was a, a pro bono, uh, attorney there. Okay. So yeah, they're a very good firm. Very, very reputable firm. Great firm, good in the good in the futures industry. And so yeah, I mean we got, you know, all of our all of our ducks in a row there and um moving along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um that's great. So the CME has their Bitcoin contract. I I guess they've listed Ethereum now, yes? Or they're gonna? They have listed the index for Ethereum. Okay, so that's it. There's a real-time index um, and a reference rate. And, and in fact, Bitcoin, they started that basically it was June of 2017 or right, right around there, middle, middle of 2017. And that's kind of how you knew eventually they would list. Ethereum, they've, you know, and, and that, so since CME, Bitcoin is, is a cash-settled contract, it settles to that index. And in fact, that that index is, you know, amalgamation of, of five other spot exchanges. Right. And and then and then you've got Ledger X out there. You've got ErisX, who just kind of well, they've been around, but they sort of just launched yesterday, if I recall correctly. And then Baxt is the ICE yep. futures on crypto. I full disclosure, I and I'd love to have them on um, our thing someday. I'm an investor in. Uh, a budding futures exchange called bitnomial.com, which um, has been I know, under I know the under bitnomial them. guys. Yeah. yeah, do you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Luke and those guys, Luke yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're great. Um, well, and I'm obviously biased. But th so this is a thing where there's a lot of, there's some startups competing. You've got the established exchanges. How do you see that playing out and how are they segmenting markets and, you know, it's really going to be interesting. And I, and you know, we, we sit around and have a lot of discussion over how these quote unquote crypto uh, futures wars are going to pan out. 
And um, it'll be really interesting to see because, it, you know, you look at basically any other product that's come to market generally, unless you're totally differentiating yourself, for instance, like um, Brent crude, different from the WTI, right? That's it's right. That's totally right. Yeah. Different parts of the country, you know, Bitcoin, obviously. Different delivery a, points. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Highly, you know, fungible product. And it, 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 it would be kind of um, a stretch to think that there's going to be, for instance, like two monthly products that both make it right. And so you've got CME, which is a larger contract, five Bitcoin, um, and you've got backed, you know, which is the smaller contract, one Bitcoin. They're both, you know, settled on a monthly basis. Will be really hard to see. Backs, backs physically delivered though, is it not? It Versus is. Bitcoin uh, index at CME is cash settled. Correct. So that's, that's one big way that you, they kind of differentiate themselves. Do you have any sense what the community wants? So like if you brought up oil and we know from our experience that in the in the energy industry, people like what's called wet barrels. So they actually want to take delivery in Cushing, Oklahoma. In the cattle contract, for instance, at CME, you took delivery. In the hog contract, you used to, and then it became an index. Do you have a sense of what the community is more comfortable with, cash settled, or do they want physical delivery? Well... You know, and I, I would actually answer that question by kind of breaking it out um, into an, a two-part answer. So what what the market wants, I think the market is is basically a little bit indifferent. If you have large institutional investors, they're used to dealing with cash settle derivatives. They're perfectly fine with the, especially the larger contract at CME. I think if you talk to a lot of, you know, a lot of the miners and validators, you know, they would probably like to be able to uh, deliver their product at some point, but a lot of those guys aren't necessarily participating at the moment. But you've the second part of that equation is you, in, in order to take and make delivery, you have to, you're dealing with the FCMs, right? And, and this is, this is a, the FCMs is, is one of those pieces to this puzzle that a lot of people in the crypto world in general don't really consider. They don't understand them. They, that they don't is understand. for sure. <laughs> Yes. They think they can just go to Coinbase and do it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, yeah, I I can't tell you how many conferences or meetings I go to and talk to, you know, people that are really well versed in crypto and are really good traders and trade size. And then they say, well, how come I just can't go to, you know, CME and just sign up for the account? And, you know, that's not the way it works. You have to go to an FCM. They're the ones that hold their money. And in fact, that's, you know, I, I hate to get off tangent, but that's really one of the great things about our trading ecosystem in the U.S. is that we've got these silos of risk, right? You know, if you trade on a crypto native exchange and you're just sending them Bitcoin as your margin collateral and that exchange decides just to take your Bitcoin and run off or, you know, to do whatever they're going to do, they're not regulated. There's really no recourse for you. If you're an individual trader, you know, it's fine if that's the risk that you want to take, this minimal operational risk if you're only trading like a Bitcoin or whatever. But if you're a financial institution with billions of dollars under management and you have a fiduciary responsibility, you're not just going to go, you know, the operational risk for you is really, it's a, it's a huge hurdle, right? It's a huge hurdle. And it's funny because I saw this one exchange starting up. It was a Chinese exchange years ago. And so they were pitching how you could trade Bitcoin on margin. And so I said, how do you calculate margin? And they said, 20%. And I said, 20% of what? Right. And they were like, it's 20%. And I said, okay, we've established that you guys don't understand margin. You're just using accounting numbers to calculate margin. And I said, how do you clear it? And they were like, we don't need clearing. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. And, and so getting back to the whole crux of that, right? So you got, maybe you ha- might have a little bit of a market demand that wants a, a delivered contract, but then you have FCMs, most of them, that really don't want to deal with delivery of, of Bitcoin. No. It, fre- it freaks them out. Freaks them out. Freaks yeah. Them out. That, I mean, they think they're going to get hacked. Yeah. <laughs> the entire system is going to get hacked by some guy coming through, you know, cryptocurrency. Right. And so I think really, you know, people thought, here's a product. 
in terms of BACT, that there's just going to be huge buy-in. And in fact, it's going to be a longer process um, than, than that if it actually ends up succeeding. Another interesting thing about BACT is really the first product you heard about from them was going to be a one-day product. So a one-day deliverable, right? And essentially what they were doing at the time is just going after the spot market. You know, they were going after the Coinbase's of the world and, you know, saying, here's here's a futures product but essentially what it is is you know you're only trading it for a day and then you make or take delivery they were going after the spot and as it turned out you know that product has not taken off at all in fact there's virtually zero adoption it's funny they listed that because you know cme did the same thing with fx right and it really never took off like they thought it was going to take off right because the established players didn't want to deal with it. It was a good place to lay some stuff off once in a while, but sure. Know. Sure. And, and again, there's, you know, these, all this stuff has been tried before, right? It, you know, this, this, none of this is really new bringing, bringing features to market. Um, and you kind of got to learn from your mistakes of the past. And that's, you know, that's one good thing the exchanges have. They, they pay attention to it because there's really nothing new under the sun. Um, but then again, you know, people, we exchanges, thankfully bring products to market all the time and see what fits, see what people want to use to manage their risk. And, um, and so it'll be a process. So, you know, um, FCMs is, is just a huge question mark there. Uh, and, and people really have to take that into account when they're talking about these products, um, you know, and how they're perceived and, and what the market wants. And so, you know, I, I don't really want, want to, you know, pick winners and losers or, you know, Give my opinion because I, I I would love to have a lot of you know a plethora of products sure. for my customers. Well, there's different really, segments. Absolutely, and I'm really hoping you know kind of in some way they all, they all succeed. But I will say that you know they're they're go- these products are going to have to do something to differentiate themselves. Now, Irisex, of course, is kind of a different story. They have, um, and by the way, everybody I've met over there is is fantastic, um, and, and I think they're highly talented. A lot of them, in fact, come from CME or you know in the clearing community in Chicago. Um, and you know, their thing is they have a, you know, again, it's a physically delivered product. Uh, they're having a much smaller contract size, but not only that, they also have a, a spot exchange that they have money transmitter licenses in, in most States. And so you've got a spot and a futures exchange under one roof regulated. Um, and you know, it's just coming out of the gate. So we don't really know. We don't know, know exactly, but yeah. uh, I think it's super interesting. And they, you know, they have uh, quarterly expirations as well as, as a monthly. And, you know, when you talk to miners, they kind of, a lot of them are looking for more of a, a long dated. Really? Um, oh, that's interesting. What, uh, one thing that'll be interesting, I think, is like in the early days of crypto, um, there was, I think Ledger X was actually out there trying to do some stuff in OTC derivatives and they got a license from the CFTC. And then they went to call on sort of the hedge fund community. And those guys said at the time, this is a while ago now, um, hey, great idea. Can't trade it because if I lose a few million bucks trading this stuff, um, it's going to be tough for me to go back to my limited partners and say, hey, you know what? We had a bad quarter. Um, We were trading cryptocurrency. (laughs) Right, exactly. Uh, And I'm wondering how long it's going to take for the institutions or what sort of catalysts. I know they're all looking at it, but the SEC has been woefully slow, dragging their feet. The CFTC has been a little more progressive to get them off the schneid where it becomes sort of a legitimate asset class. There is also is no killer app right now um, for it where, you know, you have to own it other than speculating on it. So. Right. It is. Yeah, it, it is tough. You know, and there's uh, if you get on to CT crypto Twitter and interface with a lot of these people, there's a hashtag get off zero. Right. And a lot of a lot of like specialized, um, you know, kind of investment managers going out talking to pensions and, um, you know, different pools of money and things of that nature. The one thing that they you know, that it's really fantastic from from an investing thesis standpoint is it's, you know, crypto in general, but Bitcoin specifically is highly uncorrelated to every other asset class. It, it totally is. Yep. And so, you know, as well as I do, you know, these guys don't really invest, they allocate, but you're not going to allocate to something that you could lose your job over. Right. Yeah. And, and so, <laughs> no, you know, you, you, if you go back to your LPs and you say, I was, you know, I was long equities and equities didn't do so well. And, you know, we didn't trade or whatever, you know, no one's going to lose their job for that. But it's like, you know, I put, you know, 4% of the portfolio or 5% of the portfolio and, you know, in, into somewhat the crypto asset, be it Bitcoin or something, and it loses 60% of its value, which it can 
easily do in a year, you know, then it's like you're out of a job basically, right? Because you, you know, consider doing something so stupid. But, you know, if you look at the, the, the curve of the investment landscape over the last hundred years, I mean, there was a time, quite frankly, when people only invested in, you know, high, high grade bonds, right? Corporate bonds, where investing in the equity was something that was ridiculous. Um, and then you could see the same thing about private equity and about VC and about, you know, commodity managed futures. Um, I really view crypto assets as, you know, on kind of the same arc. And, you know, I, I think really, um, you know, the, 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 just the uncorrelated nature of it, especially, you know, just with, with the world's central banks so highly involved in markets and a lot of correlations go to one, it'll get to a point where a lot of these pools of money really won't have any choice. Um, and as crazy as that sounds. But it's I, at some point, these guys, if I have a huge, you know, portfolio of stuff, of assets that are illiquid, maybe it's uh, antique cars or maybe it's, you know, whatever, art, real estate, we've heard all. If you're, if you're involved in the crypto community, you've heard all the different sorts of assets. The market can be made much more efficient by tokenizing them. And you could actually create more value for those assets um, than having it illiquid. So if you look at non-listed but public REITs, they trade about 25, 30% under their net asset value. Right. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's totally yeah. crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, tokenization of, of basically all asset classes, you know, it's going to, it's going to open up uh, investability really to the rest of the world where you have kind of, you know, a select um, pool right now, which is essentially accredited investors in the U.S., you know, Europe, parts of Asia, um, you know, tokenizing all these different assets, um, you know, it's, it's going to open up a pool. And, and, you know, quite frankly, that's that's kind of another reason. I mean, you know, essentially there will be structured vehicles that are tokenized and offered to, you know, the general you know, emerging market um, investors. And th to me, this is kind of a threat to uh, an organization like CME. I mean, what's to keep people from, you know, you know, putting a tiny amount of gold in the vault somewhere, tokenizing it um, and, and not to downplay you know, 150 years of, of intellectual property and innovation. But, you know, these these types of, you know, exposure to asset classes is, is going to be made possible by, um, you know, tokenization. And so it's it's really um, important that, you know, we, we kind of get ahead of that. Yeah. One of the things when I was on the board of CME, um, when we were going public and went to an electronic trading platform that, I thought would happen is that CME could list all kinds of contracts in all kinds of asset classes that had demand for hedging risk. Like, for example, um, one I kind of researched a bunch of years ago that seemed sort of interesting to me was the price of almonds was skyrocketing because people in China thought that it extended their life. So there was a lot of demand for almonds. All these guys were planting more and more almond trees, but there was and pecans, pecans too. There was no way to hedge it. Right. And CME could could have, or ICE or any sort of regulated futures exchange could have filed with the CFTC, thrown it on a platform and tried to get market makers to do it like what they used to in the old days. But they haven't been able to do that because, you know, they run into the microeconomics of marginal revenue equals marginal cost inside their own organization where they can't allocate resources to that because the dollars that they get back the resources are better allocated trying to explode their current bond business, treasury complex, right? Yep. And so that leaves room for startups to come up. And so with the proliferation of cryptocurrencies, it will be interesting to see. Now, I don't think, I don't think personally, like I've, I've seen a lot of deals where we're going to tokenize, you know, corporate bonds. Right. Okay. Eh, yeah. That's less sexy to me because while, yeah, we know the market's inefficient, let's figure out how to make the way the market more efficient. I don't think tokens is is the path. That being said, you know, some of these other things that you're talking about, these smaller marketplaces that are dark, if you can get in there and create efficiency and then create kind of a bigger business, well, you've got a ready marketplace, a market to buy you in CME, ICE, you know, all the other sort of big kahuna exchanges because 
frankly, I think they're not going anywhere. They're they're not too big to fail, but I just don't think they're going anywhere. Right. No, I I absolutely agree. And and really, the key point in all that is it's just getting easier for someone to spin up a matching engine. You know, put oh, up a, put up a website off the shelf. Yeah. 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 Uh, and, and that's, that's really the key. And so, you know, I don't know if you would view those as competitors again, because, you know, some of them got big enough, um, then, you know, improve kind, kind of the, uh, effectiveness of, of the actual product. You could, you could enter that market or you could buy them. Um, but you know, y- you know, as well as I do, liquidity is a sticky thing and it's really interesting, um, how that works. Right. And, really time is kind of of the essence and timing is of the essence. And so really you have to, you have to buy into it, right? You actually have to believe it's a thing. And so I think as long as, you know, uh, you know, the, the large exchanges understand that, um, you know. Yeah. Job number one for a startup exchange, get the business. Right. Because once you get it, it's, it's hard to move. And, and I think people just don't understand that. I mean, we see it over and over again and, and um, actually, tomorrow, uh, I, I pre-did a blog post for tomorrow, but I was talking about this where in the bond contract at the Board of Trade, you know, they, they listed it in 72 or whatever year, 73. And Richard Sanders is going to be on this uh, podcast someday to talk about Amerabor. But they listed it. It was open outcry. Everybody went after it with electronic trading, offering it for free, and it wouldn't move. Right. And it's because the network effects were already there. And so once you get that business and you can create some sort of network around it, it's really hard to move and they're going to have to buy you um, to get rid of it. Uh, Yeah. And I I tell people in the space all the time, you know, now it's really liquidity is everything. It's really not simplistic, you know, and, and of course, because people are trying in the crypto space, a lot of different models, especially when it comes to, say, decentralized exchanges and things of that nature. And, um, you know, it's the, the, you know, you read the white paper, the technology is interesting. I understand the use case um, and, you know, certain part, you know, regulatory arbitrage, things of that nature. But if you, if you don't have a robust matching engine and you don't have liquidity, it's just not going to make it. And, you know, that's, that's just the name of the game. So. If the, yeah. And liquidity, I mean, it is, you and I have been in markets where there is no liquidity and, you know, you're looking, you're long and, and the market's tanking and you're looking for that buyer and they're not around. Right. <laughs> it becomes a very <laughs> freaky thing. <laughs> yeah, I know. And that's, you know, people, yeah, people told, you know, tell stories about trading some of these illiquid tokens. And I'm like, if you think that's bad, try standing in the, you know, the seventh month of the, uh, you know, lean hogs trying to spread that against something. Or, you know, I, I actually traded went through years where I traded a lot of uh, RBOB spreads and, and uh, you know, crack spreads and things like that in the back. And there's, it's awesome because there's tons of opportunity, but, you know, as you know, higher, higher uh, risk reward profile. So I get the edge on every trade. <laughs> <laughs> until it disappears. Yeah. <laughs> yeah until, until somebody takes it away from you. Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. So where can people find you on the web or how would they get in touch with you? Uh, uh, well, first of all, we're, we're actually putting together, we have a landing page, roundblock.capital. Um, you can find me on, on Twitter at, at digital Brock, um, or at roundblock at round underscore block. And, um, you know, um, we, we really are, are casting a wide net in terms of, um, customers where we really focusing on, um, you know, in, people in the institutional space. So anybody who has commercial risks, so miners, validators, any, you know, Bitcoin OTC desks that need to lay off risk, any prop shops that want to do cross exchange arbitrage, um, people that are just looking for the best uh, clearing relationships. I've been in every office of every clearinghouse in Chicago and New York. And I know which ones are most interested in the space in, in terms of clearing and which ones aren't. Um, and so, yeah, uh, website, Twitter, and um, other than that, you know, just- Snail mail. No, yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> just, um, you know, following what's going on at these uh, exchanges. Okay. So one thing I always do if if an old floor trader comes on, um, funniest thing that you can talk about publicly that you saw or happened to you while you were on the floor? 
Oh man, I remember. I you know, of course, the um, the bets, right? You know, the 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 stupidity bets of what people could do. I remember walked into the break room one day, and there was a bunch of people standing around, and it was a guy on a tricycle, and the bet was. Um, they had some formula of how how slow you can go. It wasn't a tricycle. It was a tiny bicycle, right? <laughs> how slow you can go on the bicycle without falling over. <laughs> and I mean, people were wagering thousands of dollars on this of who could go who could go slowest but still slowest. But still stay up, not right? fastest, not slowest. fastest, slowest. <laughs> and I have no idea, you know, where that where that came from. But. <laughs> How did they get the bike in there? That's what I want to know. <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> it's more more oh smuggling, I guess. Yeah. What's the what's the uh, best trade, worst trade you ever had? Uh, I think um, I actually don't remember the 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 uh, best trade. Nobody does for to some be reason. With you. <laughs> um. Worst, worst trade was honestly, it was only uh, probably a few years ago. And I was, I, I just got uh, carried away with, with risk. And I, I was naked short, you know, too many calls in the, in oh. the logs. Oh. And, um, you know, the, the gamma got to me. So talk about an illiquid market trying yeah. to get out of calls, <laughs> trying to get out of halls, calls in a rallying market. Right. Um, there is no offer. Nope. But yeah, I mean, you know, I've 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 got a lot of them, obviously, as as we all do over the years. But um, you know, what I what I really try to um, you know emphasize to to new traders is that really, if you want to take up trading and have it be your sole source of income, the most important thing is that you can come in the next day and turn on your computer. That's that's really it. Not working for someone. And, you know, having the luxury of, you know, really, you could have a day where it's only 10 minutes long. So the most important thing, thing is, is your risk management and just being able to turn on your screen the next day to, to come back into work. Um, that's that's, you know, it, it, as long as you're doing that, you'll be fine. You'll survive. You'll, you'll, be in, you'll, you'll survive. So. Uh, what, what do you think about people? Let's say I'm a e-mini trader. But I want to trade crypto. How how would I start to think about it? How would I measure my risk? And then how do you make the transition to just trading crypto? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you know, um, obviously, definitely focus on one space. You know, I'll, I'll talk my book a little bit here in terms of I think it's you're much better off um, being in futures where you can go both long and short. Um, it's really easy. You have, you're operating on regulated exchanges, you have tax advantages. Um, and so I'll, you know, I'd say, you know, start with those products, um, focus on it and really take a, take a close look at, you know, what the volatility is and, and, you know, kind of how it, how it moves. And we're actually, you know, CME is going to be listing options quarter one of next year. And we're really excited about that because, um, I think there's going to be a lot of, of great volatility plays, but, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, just it always just, expands everything when you when you have options to lay off some risk or to execute strategies on. Absolutely. Yeah. And since the margin requirements are really so high in, in relation to other you know products, you know, being able to put on a on a call spread or a put spread and knowing what you know what your dedicated risk is, um, I, I think will be great to a lot of. Um, traders that are just, you know, kind of entering the market, they don't have to put on a, a naked long or short. That's a really good point on the margin. That is a really good point. Can you trade crypto daily and be flat at the end of the day and make money? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I okay. think so. Although, what kind of size do you have to trade? How many? Um, well, I mean, you know, keep it small for sure, because you'll you'll have those, you know, days when, the, you know, uh, September, for instance, when Xi Jinping came out and you know was talking about blockchain in China, and the market was up forty percent in a day. So you know, um, yeah, I mean, but you you could definitely. The interesting thing about Bitcoin is, though, is you know it's it's volatility, but it's different kind of volatility. It's it's more of a jump volatility as as opposed to a diffuse volatility, right? So I would say like you know um, it's, it trades more like a natural gas than say like a Nasdaq, which you know Nasdaq is just kind of like a diffuse. It's volatile enough and it's a good trade, 
but like, you know, it trades more like, say, a natural gas would when, you know, you have numbers coming out or, or something of that nature. So, um, right. It moves to a point and then trades around that point rather than trades through a bunch of prices from point to point. Exactly. Yep. And so, yeah, again, we're, we're really excited about, you know, and we think, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the miners, um, you know, will be using options tools. We'll be much better off. They should. Um, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. They should. Um, you know, a lot of them, a lot of them, uh, slow to adopt. What's the biggest sticking point when you try to educate people? Because the federal government would love to get, let's say, out of price supports with farmers. And they could, if farmers would all use options on wheat, options on corn, whatever, beans. Um, and they could get rid of it and save a ton of money. What What's the educational process for somebody that has no idea about this stuff? What's the sticking point to you? Well, think? one big sticking point is just kind of their nature, right? If you get into, um, you know, validating blocks for Bitcoin, mining Bitcoin, right? You're essentially just, you know, it's almost like a religion to a lot of them. They're, they're, they're mining. Um, they're only selling off as much as they have to to cover their costs, electricity, ASICs, what have you. And they're holding Bitcoin and they think it's just going to a million dollars, right, tomorrow. And, you know, Bitcoin is, if, if you look at the underpinnings of it, it's, it's no different than any other commodity. They're, they're um, supply and demand cycles that you have to keep in mind. So one of them is just kind of convincing them that this will be a cyclical um, market structure, right? Uh, the second big thing really is, again, a lot of them... Um, or, you know, there's a lot of anti-establishment. So, you know, telling them they need to KYC, sign up on an exchange, um, and then explaining to them how margin works. Um, it's really kind of a hurdle. And then, you know, a lot of them, there's only liquidity, like say in the front month, well, they want to hedge risk, like going six months out. So what you see is a lot of them using, uh, structured products. And in fact, we, we've, you know, facilitate that we have an we have a book of, of counterparties that we, we use that will write them really any kind of structured product that they want. But like, for instance, it was a day or two ago, CME announced that they were going to list like another three contracts going out. So, you know, hopefully there'll be some liquidity, you know, going on longer and, I, you know, slowly but surely there's so there's a big event in, in Bitcoin, whereas the, the block rewards will actually be halved sometime around next year. So right now. A block, you get uh, the you know twelve and a half Bitcoin rewards, but it's going down to six point two five May of next year, and so that really is going to cut in significantly, obviously, to the profitability of a lot of miners. That's going to raise their costs significantly, isn't significantly, it? and so they'll have to be a lot more mindful of you know hedging hedging risk in these markets, utilizing different strategies. And now, again, this is just like any other commodity cycle you've seen. There's a lot more sophisticated um, money, a lot of VC coming into the Bitcoin mining space, a lot of big names. And so I think, unfortunately, you'll see a lot of the smaller, um, you know, operations uh, that, that, you know, will have a really tough time making it through the halving. So, so given the political environment, this is a very... I don't know how you describe the question. Do you think there's uh, a room for a private equity roll-up of uh, of uh, smaller Bitcoin miners? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it sounds funny, but I, quite frankly, I think a lot of it's already happening, uh, believe it or not. And you know, you're you're also so that's one trend. Another trend you're seeing is a lot of the mining, of course, go you know happens in China, Sichuan province. Um, but you know, there's so much unpredictability dealing with the central government in China. Um, there's a lot of seasonality to their power output. And so you're seeing, quite frankly, a lot of them moving over to uh, North America, Canada, United States, where, you know, we have more rule of law. You could you could sign a long term contract for energy procurement. You know, you're, so you're seeing a lot of people enter the space in upstate New York and Texas. And like you said, Nebraska, um, quite frankly, anywhere, um, you know, you just have to get the the right terms. But when you have contract law and things of that nature, uh, you know, like we do in North America, you know, that it's just one of those things you can cross off. It's an unknown. It turns out property rights are kind of a big deal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, yeah, it kind of works, right? So, That's funny. That's yeah. funny. Well, thank you very much for, uh, for coming on the Top Step Trader program today. Um, 
good trading and um, good luck with Round Block Capital. Uh, it sounds like um, you're in the right place at the right time. So um, I, if people want to learn more about crypto trading, they can contact Brock um, online or on Twitter, probably easier on Twitter. Um, and then he can he can shepherd you through the process from there. Um, and I hope, uh, I hope you guys learned something today and I hope you trade well. Thank you very much. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Jeff. I really appreciate it. Traders, thank you for making it to the conclusion of the Limit Up podcast presented by Top Step Trader. I hope you're all having a great start to the new year and that your resolutions are coming along nicely. We'll be back next week with a brand new interview and announce the last five winners of our listener survey raffle. Once again, that's over at topsteptrader.com slash listener survey. It's just 10 multiple choice questions, and it'll really help us improve this show. Uh, also, be sure to visit our private Facebook group and subscribe to the Top Step blog for your most up-to-date market information, of which there's a lot floating around right now, that's for sure. Anyway, everybody have a wonderful weekend. Namaste and trade well. This episode produced by Dante32. Futures in Forex trading contains substantial risk and is not for every investor. An investor could potentially lose all or more than their initial investment. Risk capital is money that can be lost without jeopardizing one's financial security or lifestyle. Only risk capital should be used for trading, and only those with sufficient risk capital should consider trading. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results.